Hi, I'm your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the podcast of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. It's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to the show. I have Dr. Betty Kovacs here today. She is the author of There is Nothing But Life and Merchants of Light. Her first book, There's Nothing But Life, is a story about her own family, and they had experienced death of a family member and proof that there was life after death. So Betty is going to share her story about that with us today. Welcome to the show, Betty. Thank you so much. So I should, should I just begin? <laughs> you can begin when you're ready. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought that perhaps the most important story of my life is the story of the death of our only child, our son, Pishti. But uh, within one decade, uh, my mother was hit by a car and killed instantly. Uh, and the next year to the day, uh, our only child, Pishti, was in an accident, a car accident. And he was, however, in the trauma center for 13 days. But the day of his accident was exactly the same day one year later as my mother's accident one year earlier and at the same time. <laughs> so when these things happen, we have to at least take notice and ask the question of what is the meaning perhaps of the synchronicity. And when we were finally able to take him off of the life support systems because they realized he wouldn't make it, uh, it was the 10th. And we tried to get them to take him off the life support system the day before because we knew he wasn't going to make it. And there was a, a substitute doctor for the weekend and he was just afraid to do it. But the nurse said, well, be patient because sometimes there's a reason for these things. And the interesting thing is that on the morning of the 10th, they called and said, there's been another test. The doctor is comfortable with removing all life support. So we can do that today. And the interesting thing about 10 is that when our uh, son was not quite 12, he had a dream of his death and he had, uh, he saw himself, he said, mom, I'm up above the hospital looking down at my dead body. I've been in an operation room and now I'm in a, a, a special care uh, the intensive care ward. And he said, I'm looking down at my dead body and then there's a period of darkness and then I'm on the other side and I see a horseshoe shape and I'm at the uh, top of the horseshoe and there are four boys on my left, four boys on my right and there's an eternal fire in the middle. And on the other side of that fire, I see we are all, we, I see an aura and it's, we're all waiting for this boy I know that when this boy arrives, we, I, it will be me and I am, then I will be 10. And that is the number of completeness. So these 10 beings were himself and he knew that they were waiting for that 10th one 
and then when it arrived, he would be complete. And it's interesting that we couldn't get them to take him off of the machines until it was the 10th day. <laughs> I mean, that it was November 10th. And, you know, you, we had talked a little bit about numbers before the show. So there were so many things like that with numbers. But 10 is a number of completeness. But uh, at any rate, then two years later, actually two years and four months later, my husband went to his home country, Hungary, uh, to visit his family and also for business. And he was killed in a third automobile accident. He was killed instantly. But during the time... Uh, after our son's death, we had many visions with him and the visions were so clear and he was so present. And he wanted us, first of all, to know that he was alive and well. And then he also wanted us to know what the earth was going through in the decades to come, that it was one of the most important periods of life on earth. And he wanted us to remember why we had chosen this time to be born. So that was, those experiences changed our lives and certainly transformed my husband because while I had been interested in these things and I had taught uh, at, at college, I had a class in mythology, symbolic language, and we just discovered all kinds of exciting things together. And I had gone to Peru twice to work with shamans and I had begun to have experiences, but I still wasn't absolutely convinced about death. Do we really continue or what? <laughs> and uh, my husband, when I tried to tell him one of the experiences I'd had in Peru, I realized he just wasn't listening. And I said, Ishvan, I, I know you're not interested in this. And since he'd been caught, he had to admit it. And he said, well, that's, he said, I know you, I know you experienced it, but I have never in my life had any experience like that. And I just can't understand it. I don't know what to do with it. And I thought that's honest. And I think that says uh, something about a majority of people on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, I would always listen to those experiences, but until I had had them, I couldn't really make sense of them either. I didn't know whether it's true or not. And certainly we only know something is true when we ourselves have experienced it, not when exactly. we're told or it's a doctrine or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, uh, later, about a week before Pishti was in the accident, my husband was in his office and he suddenly saw in a visionary state Pishti's car off the side of the freeway and he saw his body superimposed on it. And he knew he was dead because it was two different dimensions. And then he felt himself say, oh, that's right, Pishti. It's almost time for you to do this. And that shocked him so, but then he heard Pishti's voice say, that's right, dad, I'll be out of the house for a little while. Well, then Ishvan just went completely unconscious. He didn't, or that, that experience became unconscious. And it didn't come back until we were both in the house when the call came from the hospital that he'd been in an accident. That was very unusual too, that we were both there that afternoon. We were both uh, planning to go in different directions. And at that moment, when the call came through, then he remembered and he was convinced he would die because he saw that. But throughout the 13 days, he really tried to hope that 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 wasn't true, that he would live. 
But then uh, that pretty much opened him up. But uh, in the hospital when Pishti was in a very serious state about the, um, well, it was just a few days before he actually died. One evening, the doctor came to us and said, your son may die within the hour. There are two things we can do and we're doing them now, but we don't know whether he can survive through the hour. Well, we had friends all over, they were in their places doing what they felt like they needed to do at that time. And Ishtvan and I were standing outside, Ishtvan and my husband, we were standing right outside the trauma center. And I just sort of naturally took his hand and when I did, I felt just like a shock going through my body. And I looked at him quickly because I thought he's, he's going to have a heart attack. And I saw that he was really tremendously distraught. And as couples do, he was usually the one who comforted me. But now I quite naturally comforted him. And I don't even know where the words came from. But I said, Ishvan, if we're called on to do this, we can do it. And then we didn't say anything more. Afterwards, Ishtvan told me that it was true. He himself thought he might have a heart attack. He said the tension was so intense that he, he didn't know what would happen to him. And then it just exploded, that tension just exploded into images. And he saw Pishti sit up in his hospital bed and reach for a dove that had a ball of light in its mouth. And Pishti then put that in his heart and lay back down. Then Ishtvan saw him on the small mountain next to the large mountain at Huaynapichu. Um, and he, he, he realized that his presence was real. And he was, Pishti was reaching up with his left hand into the heavens and down with his right hand to the earth. So it was like he was a bridge between the other dimension and this one. Mm -hmm. And he was also, he could felt that there was information coming from that bridge. But at any rate, he said to me later, I had no idea whether Pishti would live or die, but it, it wasn't the issue because I realized that there is nothing but life and that I could never be separated from him because we were connected through love. And so began, so began Ishvan's journey into quite another world for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had many visions. And I, who had already begun to have these visionary experiences, uh, I had been trained in the university. And I did not believe that the left rational brain was superior to all the other brain components. I did not believe that, even though I was taught that you know, that nothing can be assessed as real unless the left brain passes on it, you know, it mm -hmm. has to have a certain logic and scientific verification. So when I had visions, when I was in them, I knew, but when I came out, my left brain that had been trained, although I had rejected it, I had been brainwashed on an unconscious level, and I had to do business with that, and finally come to allow this right brain this visionary symbolic brain that develops first and is not irrational as the West has always said, it has a poetic logic. And it is that logic that 
feeds into the left brain that develops conceptual logic and thinking. Finally, I was able to create a balance between those brain components. And there's a wonderful uh, symbolic theorist of the 1700s, Italian, Giambattista Vico, and he understood this. He was living at the same time that the French philosophers, enlightenment so-called in France, were saying there's nothing but the rational mind, everything else was nonsense. And Vico's trying to say, you know, let's look at the symbolic brain and it is equal. It is equal to conceptual mind. And there should always be a continuous dynamic flow between the two. One cannot be reduced to the other. There is poetic logic and there is conceptual logic and they both are related. In fact, it is poetic logic that creates conceptual logic. So there must be this dynamic movement. So I had a, a hard time developing that, I might say. But, and so Ishtran was my anchor. <laughs> Here was the person who kind of didn't know what to do with me. He was now my anchor. And, uh, and we had uh, intense visions in which Pishti was fully present and talking to us and telling us things that, that we hadn't known otherwise. And my husband was funny. He would come into my study and he'd say, get a next book. He said, I've got to make up for 50 years. And so he was reading like crazy. But before that, right after Pishti died, he said Pishti was just talking constantly. It was like a recording, trying to fill him in on what he had forgotten. And when Pishti then crossed over, Ishtvan had that visionary aspect that Pishti had carried. And it was an interesting thing that uh, one of the things that we talked about with Pishti was that Pishti showed Ishtvan, his dad, how they were one soul, that sometimes they were born as two and sometimes as one. But Ishtvan experienced that. When he, they were two characters, Pishti was talking to him about that life experience. When they were one character, he knew. And it's very interesting because uh, I had had a visionary experience about a year earlier in which I was told by the voice in the vision that they were of one soul. And they both had the same name, which was kind of traditional in Hungary uh, for the firstborn. And the voice said, you thought that you chose to name him Istvan, uh, but he could not have been named anything else. They are of the same soul and they need, needed the same frequency in that name. <laughs> uh, Ishvan is just uh, the adult name for Pishti. So it's the same name. They both were really Ishvan. And I use Ishvan to <laughs> differentiate from Pishti because really I use Pishti and Pishta. But that's when I would do that at work, people thought when I was talking about my husband, I was talking about my child I, or vice versa, which didn't work too well. So, but at any rate, so, so that was uh, a remarkable in and of itself. But then when I went back to my dream books, I saw that I had been dreaming about Pishti's death for two years. But I always thought of it, sometimes I would be in grief and then, oh no, it isn't Pishti, it was someone else's son. And then I grieved as though it was my son. So I realized later that in those two years, I had grieved very much already and had been prepared, you might say, for the death. But even more interesting was that dream that Pishti had before he was 12 in which he saw his death obviously an accident in the trauma center and on the other side. 
And then when he was about a year, the, it was within the year before his death, he was going to one college, I was going to another, and I was making a cappuccino for both of us. And then he came in and he said, oh, mom, I had, I had a, a, a real dream. I just woke up from it. And in that dream, he was in um, a trauma center and I was with him. And I was telling him, if you choose to come back, you can, and you can come back well and healthy. But if, and we will accept that, but if you do not choose to go, I mean, if you do not choose to go, you can come back. But if you choose to go, be sure you come back for the body. Don't leave the body here. Be sure you come back for the body. The interesting thing is that later, I told that to him when I went to the trauma center that first day, only later did we actually read his dream that he had written down and I remembered it. And I thought that was again, synchronistic. But in the dream, there were candles burning everywhere and there was chanting coming from the other side. And he said, mom, can you hear my chanting? Can you hear the chanting? And I said, yes, we can all hear it in our sleep. And that was the part of his dream. And I thought that's interesting later because we did hear, we did know. Ishtvan knew and I knew and he knew, but we didn't know really. And we were able to live life joyfully because we looked at all of these things symbolically. But at any rate, in the dream, he, uh, I said to him at one point, he would go out and come back and walk right through the walls in the dream. And he came back and I said, you are afraid, aren't you? And he got in the bed covered up and he said, no, I'm not a chicken. <laughs> and he, when he covered himself with the blanket, then the light just came in and swooped the body out. And he said, I was going past planets and, and sun so quickly they popped. And then he came back in the body. Then he was in the hospital in a trauma center and he heard, uh, he saw someone working with him and then he heard a voice say, he's been reduced to a vegetable, let him go. And he said, I looked down at uh, that body and I realized, oh, that's not me. And then he left again in the same way and I can remember taking his arm and saying oh thank god it wasn't you and then of course <laughs> later when I read the a dream I realized of course it was and of course by that time he had gone but it was it was like we knew he was going to die but we didn't consciously we'd had all of those life experiences in the dream visionary world so we were prepared so that when he died, I think it was easier for us, not that it was easy at all, but it, it helped, helped us and I think him. But it was almost like he was practicing his transition to the other side. Why do you think that you were, it looks like you were given a lot of warnings, you know, in your dreams and your husband's visions and your son's dreams. Why do you think that was happening? Because sometimes when there's a death, I feel like there's, there's no warning like that. There's yeah. no prophetic, you know, this is what might happen. It's true. Very, it seems as though it isn't, it doesn't happen that way always. Uh, although it may be that if we did, if I hadn't written all of that down 
And if Pishti hadn't shared that with me, and then I wrote it down, and he wrote it down, and he drew it. And when he drew the bed, he drew the in the trauma center where he was, the wash basin. When I walked in, it was just exactly as he had drawn it. If if we hadn't nurtured paying attention to our dreams, he might never have told me that. And he wouldn't have written it down. He wouldn't have drawn it. I wouldn't have written it down. And then if I didn't have the habit of writing the dreams in a journal, I might not have remembered all those dreams. And if I hadn't um, honored the dreams and tried to figure them out, but you know, I think it was a blessing that I looked at them symbolically. And we never know mm -hmm. if a dream is symbolic or literal, precognitive. Yeah. But I think that I can't answer that question, except I know that we're much more likely to get uh, the information before uh, if we pay attention to these things. On the other hand, it may be that someone is paying attention, but that there's some reason why that person only finds out at the time that it happens. And I think that we can't know, you know, mm -hmm. all of us are creative individuals and we're creating our experiences in different ways. Yeah. And so that might have been a creative intention not to know until. Yeah, see, I'm thinking about um, my father passed away when I was 18. And now I'm thinking, did I have any dreams or, or visions of that happening? I really don't recall it at all. But you're right. When you have a dream or a vision, you have to write it down right away. <laughs> or all those details are going to go away. And then with your husband, because he couldn't conceptualize, you know, um, life after death or an invisible spiritual world, it was almost like he was blocked because when you were trying to tell him your experience and he wasn't listening, he could always listen. You could always listen, even if you don't <laughs> believe it. I'm sorry. Like I've heard all the sorts of stuff and I may have not agreed with it or you know but you can still listen you know to your wife's experience without <laughs> having to like really believe a hundred percent of it you know what I mean he but heard the, it but it didn't mean anything to him didn't he register. out of listening if, if he could have gotten out of it <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> yeah, true though if someone is not ready to really hear it, they're not going to hear it. It's true. And the interesting thing is he was always uh, supportive of whatever I did, you know, and my work in that. Uh, but afterwards, when Pishti was with him, then Pishti, when Pishti, my husband was young, he could memorize anything very quickly. His mother used to tell me that she would read a poem to him once or twice and he had it. But when he was little, he was playing in a tree. They were playing stork <laughs> and he fell out of the tree. One very good stork <laughs> and uh, hit his head when he fell. And he realized later and Pishti told him he often had migraine headaches that when he fell that time, he'd slightly twisted the brainstem just slightly. And he said, in that way, uh, you didn't have that ability any longer to have the visions or that very sharp memory uh, anymore. He said, if you, if you hadn't fallen so that that would be stopped somewhat in you, then you and mom might not have been able to conceive me. 
and he truly was the visionary. He, and uh, since they were of one soul, and then when Pishti died, and then Ishvan started having the visions, then he, he realized that Pishti had to cross over before he could hold that because both of them couldn't have it. But Ishvan had it until he fell. Then when Ishvan came along, or Pishtika, he had it. And not until our son died did Ishvan then again have that ability. So that's kind of interesting. But he nurtured my interest, but it wasn't easy to talk to him about it. But that was- I can relate. <laughs> We don't know why. I think, well, why wouldn't you? And now I realize later that wasn't what he was to do at that point, you know? And so, you know, sometimes we can get so mad at these husbands. <laughs> and yet there may be a reason, a, a very profound spiritual reason, but why at that point they are not to do that, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. <laughs> you know? So how long ago was this? Well, this was my mother was killed in the... At, uh, 1990, my son 91, and then Ishvan 94. But really, it was just two years and four months because Pishti died at the end of the year and Ishvan was in the spring. So it was two years and four months later that Ishvan was killed, all in the 90s. So that, um, that all, was quite a decade. <laughs> all car accidents? All three car accidents. Okay, what's the significance of car accidents? Have you pondered that? I pondered, I pondered it. <laughs> and one thing is, now that I am much older, I think I see so many people suffering in old age, suffering many times, but in old age, before they leave the body, I really wish that we could be better creators so that we could help people get out of the body without extensive suffering that is so intense that they can't really be creative. I mean, I don't know sometimes what good that is. Maybe there is a, there's something in it that I don't know, but I, now that I'm older, I think it's a beautiful way to get out of the body. It's quick. And, uh, and I thought all three of them were very quick. And uh, I've often thought too, I could have been left with three people in wheelchairs, brain damaged, not really themselves, not able to real live life fully or create. And I've always been grateful that that didn't happen. So they did go quickly and it's hard on the ones who remain, but it's, it's a kind of gift, you know, for those who go. Um, beyond that, I don't know. There may be other significance in it that I'm not aware of. Um, I think with accidents, um, you know, say someone trips and sprains their ankle or whenever something happens, like I have a chance to ask that person, where were you going when you tripped or what were you thinking about? You know, mm -hmm. because I believe in divine intervention and, or, you know, saying you don't need to take this trip right now, or you don't know, you don't need to go to the store right now. Or <laughs> yeah. You don't need to go to this job anymore. Cause it's sucking your soul, you know, that kind of thing. So when, when someone has accidents like that, you know, obviously this was a fatal accident for, for your loved ones. 
So, you know, it's been a long time. What, it 25 has, years? More than it's 25? been, yes, 30, yes, for Pishti. Uh, you know, um, I felt that in each case, the, the, the information that came through was that it was precisely their time to go. Uh, and I think that my mother, I was grateful because she had always said, I don't, I, you know, I really don't want to suffer through death. I'd like to just go quickly. And uh, she was alone. Uh, she lived, uh, well, in the middle of the country. We live in California. And I'd already thought, you know, she's 77. And I thought, you know, we better be aware that we might have to do something that so we could take care of her. And I knew she loved living independently. So that was a question. And but I felt so clearly that that was exactly when she wanted to go. And certainly with Pishti um, that uh, and I think with Ichvan too. And uh, they they both communicated that was exactly the time that they had chosen to leave. And uh, but I think, you know, maybe it isn't always. You know, I think sometimes we we throw ourselves into accidents that are not intended, and we need to think very, very clearly about that. Yeah. Do you, have you ever heard of the psychic medium Sylvia Brown? Yes. Yes. Okay. She yes, said, "Yeah, she said that um, you have five exit points in your lifetime, and that mm -hmm. you, at that point you can choose to stay or go." Mm -hmm. Yes, well, we hear that from people who've experienced near death or in the UK, they say it's actual death because they're a total flatliner at that point, that they're often, well, very often they're told, no, it's not your time. Or they're saying, well, you can choose, you know, whether to go or to stay. And it's kind of interesting. So, well, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. I would be quite open to that, that they're five. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was always interesting because you you look back on your life on times where you might not have made it or or and you know you might not have recovered from that illness or you might not have walked away from that accident. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's really it's it's really true, uh, and I think that you know I think that we our our ancestors certainly wanted us to know. It was their heritage for us that we know that we are immortal and that we are divine. Everything is divine and that we are creative and that we create and co-create. You know, we might come in with a general pattern of what we want to achieve and how to do it, but we're co-creating with everybody else. And so that uh, varies, can vary, whatever. But uh, Ishtvan uh, had an experience in which we all are creating in parallel universes. And he said one time after vision, he said, I saw very clearly that sometimes I, Ishvan, go first and Pishti stays. Sometimes he goes first and I stay. It depends upon the circumstances and which would be most uh, more effective. And he said, but you're the one who always stays to write about ML. I didn't know what that was at that point, but as time went on, I did realize that uh, that I would write about ML, and my second book is called Merchants of Light, 
the consciousness that is changing the world. And Istvan had an experience with Pishti in which uh, they were talking, my husband experienced the same, one of the same symbols I did, and that was Anubis, the Egyptian god Anubis, the jackal, who is the psychopomp who uh, crosses over between dimensions. But he also is the jackal that eats the decayed and then transforms it into new life in his own body. And he had come to me just before Pishti's death as a visionary. And anyway, in this vision of my husband's, he, he was with the jackal, with Anubis, and there was that symbolism of the decayed has to be transformed into, into life, into new life. And then Pishti was with him and he said, dad, look up in the hexagram, this, I mean, in the I Ching, this hexagram, starting from the top, usually when you throw the I Ching, it's from the bottom of the hexagram you build up. He said, starting from the top, it's straight, broken, broken, straight, broken. And so at any rate, when Ishvan was, had the vision and was through, he said to me, do we still have the I Ching? And I said, yes, but I'll have to have it. I ran into my study. I got it, went back in. And so he said, look up that hexagram. Well, I looked it up start, starting from the top to the bottom. And I was so stunned. I, I just took the book over and we read it together because it was 18, hexagram 18, working with what has decayed. And so that's what the whole vision was about. And the hexagram, I read the hexagram, and it is about working on what has decayed. And if there's anything appropriate and synchronistic for our culture, it's certainly that, isn't it? And so after I had written the first book about our experiences, which we recorded right after the vision, we recorded them. I didn't want any... Uh, any kind of extravagant discussion of them. I wanted it exactly as we had experienced them. And so that book, I'd finished that book. And so then I thought, well, I'll throw the hexagram. What is this next book to be about? And didn't I throw 18 coup working on what has decayed? <laughs> so then when I, when I was doing the research for this book, I found these wonderful cultures, indigenous cultures who, did know how to make contact with the other side. They did know that we are immortal and divine and creative, but these cultures were always squashed and uh, destroyed, censored, suppressed to the degree that they could be. Western culture is based on the knowledge of those powers that suppressed who we really are. So I realized, okay, that's my work work on what has decayed. And so while the book was about these incredible uh, cultures of people who knew how to, how to connect in the shamanic way with the other side uh, were suppressed. Some just by the vicissitudes of history were gone, but others were suppressed. And so I wrote about that and I realized, well, yes, that was my work, but ML, so who are ML? <laughs> these merchants of light and I thought Ishvan would sometimes come up with strange phrasing because English was his second language. And I thought, merchants of light? How strange. And he said, oh, uh, he said, those are, they are merchants of light, masters of light, masters of love, 
um, and miracle lovers, mother love, and he went on and on. And he said, they are an energy field. And out of that energy field, we can be transformed. And people who have a higher energy frequency can be born now in that field. And they are working with us from the other side. And they have that higher frequency that the earth is attempting to develop. Yeah. <laughs> so that has decayed on the planet. So how do we rebound from that? You know, do you address that in the book? Um, yes. Uh, in, in, yes, in a way I do. And certainly today, um, I think we are faced with a lot of decayed <laughs> uh, attitudes and belief systems. For example, uh, our science, what we have called science, was a very limited science. And I went to the university to try to find out what this was all about, because death was an issue for me, I mean, as it is for many. I mean, if we think about it, and what did I find out there, of course, is that science says that uh, there's nothing but matter. There's no other side. There's no other dimension. There's nothing but matter. And we are all a fluke, a fluke of matter. And there's no meaning. There's no purpose. You can have no effect on matter. And when we're dead, we're dead. Well, if we were intelligent, that's what we were supposed to think. And so we'd have to keep a little quiet if we were looking for something else. And so I thought, okay, let me look at the religion story. And so I studied various religions and then that led me to mythology and ritual and shamanism. Uh, and so I studied these, but, and I saw this is beautiful in shamanism because they are knowledgeable in how to trigger uh, the mind to be open to the other dimension. And yet it wasn't until I had my own experiences that I could say, I know, I could say, I think maybe perhaps, but I also realized how our science had become so limited. Uh, all of these cultures that knew who we are, that we're all born in universal mind and that we have a, a little a valve that limits that stream of consciousness so that we can live our everyday lives. But a shaman needed to know how to trigger that valve so that that universal mind could flow through us and we knew then who we are and why we're here. Well, that was what they knew, but when they were suppressed, they went underground in Europe. There, was, there were, for instance, the cave cultures, the San uh, Bushmen in Africa and the Kalahari Desert, but in, in Europe, then Egypt and old Europe, which wasn't even discovered until the last century, and the first temple Judaism, which is a shaman mystic tradition. None of that we knew until the last century in the 20th century. And then the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers in Greece, they really were the Greeks in Anatolia, Turkey, but they came to Italy and were in Greece too. They really taught Plato, but Plato distorted those teachings a bit. 
But here the pre-Socratic uh, philosophers, which I had never heard anything about any kind of mystical or sh shamanic abilities in, in school when I studied them, but uh, Peter Kingsley did incredible work and realized they were powerful shamans and powerful healers and that they are the roots of Western culture, but they too were suppressed. So these cultures went underground and they emerged in a Renaissance four times in Europe. And I think the fifth time is today in Western culture. So it was in the high middle ages and in the Italian Renaissance in the Rosicrucian in the 1600s and in the German romantic and now today. But in the 1600s, it was very clear that these underground traditions came to Prague, the old Bohemia. There was a Catholic, uh, Rudolf, who was in power there, but he was interested in all of these things. So he let all of these underground traditions come together. They were scientists, they were engineers, they were poets, and they were mystics. And of course, the mystic will always become a scientist if he has the ability to develop in it, because mysticism and science were always, a, they were two sides of the same coin. If I have a deep mystical experience, I want to know how does that work conceptually? Well, they existed and they actually had power in Prague for about 20 years. Then the church saw what was going on, destroyed everything. They destroyed the text. They destroyed uh, their ability uh, to be together and study and exchange. And then after that, there were the 30 years, there was the 30 years war between Catholics and Protestants. Well, in 1660 in the UK, that's when the Royal Society for Science was established. After all of this that had happened, every one of those men knew they could not do anything with mysticism. They could not study consciousness. It had to be matter only or they were dead and their reputations ruined if they weren't get killed. This is how Western science was birthed, so to speak. They could only study matter. So of course there was only matter and they never developed the tools to study the inner world. And of course, as they went on, they forgot that that's what was going on. The ones initially knew very well. Later, scientists didn't know that that was just, you know, if they were true scientists, they would know that they could not say there is no other dimension because they didn't have the tools to study it. But that's pretty much what happened. And so it's not until quantum physics was discovered in the early part of last century, although they knew something big was going on, it was something very different. And those scientists began reading mystical literature, they couldn't figure it out. In the last 50 years, quantum physicists who were really on the edge realize what the shaman mystic had realized. And so it's come, science has come full circle and we finally have a science worthy of the name. So the limited science is what I was brought up on. And most people in the West still think as an indigenous or shamanic practitioner, there is a knowledge of something else, of course, but they weren't listened to. Yeah, I wanted to, I think it's important for people to know that history because you're right. I mean, and a lot of that is still happening now, even in this country where, you know, the science flag is thrown out, you know, and this is science and, 
And as a person that works with energy and energy healing and the spirit world, like science doesn't recognize what I do except through quantum physics. And even with quantum physics, there's a discomfort now in the science community with, it's like the white elephant in the room. What are we going to do with this? You know, this doesn't really fit with what we've been trained and taught. And now quantum physics came in. We're like, uh oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's true. It's so true. And the interesting thing is that science, the science that we know in the West, the material science never really allowed for a discussion uh, and openness to the other forms of work with energy. They were never open to it, totally closed. And we see that today is that people say, well, I follow science. Well, they are following a science that is pretty much in the control of money and power. Scientists who are healing COVID, we might say, or working with energy in a very, or, or medicines, natural medicines, in a very different way are censored. Mm-hmm. And censored severely by the government and the health agencies and various uh, organizations that are working for them. So we are right now in, in a very a difficult period. I think that that worldview of Western culture produced uh, a very materialistic uh, need for power and control and their own kind of belief system. And now we see work uh, toward uh, transhumanism, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is fine, but it should not replace what is so intimately human because we don't know what the human being can do today because we have not been open to what the human being really is, its powers and its potential. We don't know that. And the scientists are saying, well, we're flawed. We're not really adequate. And we will merge the machine with the human and we'll make transhumanism. This is from a very narrow, very limited so-called scientific perspective. But I think these are, one could say, our brothers and sisters who have been molded by a very limited scientific worldview in the Western world. Just as those scientists at the time, we can't blame them for studying only science. Their lives were at stake. And now I think we have to know what many of these scientists are doing and reject the limitedness of it, but to also understand they are the product of a worldview in which the human being is insignificant and flawed and needs to be controlled. And oh, now we have the way to do it technically. So I think we need to be so aware of what is going on. And we're not going to get it through our news because that is controlled by large corporations. And so we have to be very savvy to try to find the truth about what is going on and who we are and what is our potential. Uh, I was just reading uh, Greg Braden's book. He says it so well, and any listener out there might be interested in going to it. Greg Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N, The Science of Self-Empowerment. And he's talking about what scientifically we now know about the potential of the human being. 
this is what our science today needs to be focused on, this tremendous multidimensional potential within the human being. Work with that rather than trying to replace it with a kind of playing God <laughs> with technology. Well, I think that idea of the human being being flawed comes from religion too, because, you know, in, in Catholicism, they talk about you're born a sinner and you, you're, you need to atone for your sins. You need to get forgiveness for your sins. You know, I think that's ridiculous that a, a beautiful, innocent baby is born with I sin. I know. Well, you put your finger right on it in the process of suppressing the ancient shaman mystic tradition and all of this I talk about in Merchants of Light. In that process, for instance, in 621 BCE, we have the shaman mystic tradition of the Jewish tradition in the first temple and the Deuteronomists come in and they turn over everything. There was the beautiful image of the male God and the female goddess, Yahweh and wisdom, who co-created the universe together. And she was honored, she was nature, she was soul, and she was the tree. She had groves of trees and images, all of that was burned down, destroyed. And they got rid of the wisdom literature, which talked about the soul within and the multidimensionality of the human being that was destroyed. And this thanks to Margaret Barker's uh, Old Testament researcher. She's incredible uh, scholar. And then she says, and I, I, there's evidence to support it, that Jesus, the Jesus tradition born in the Jewish tradition was the Jewish attempt who did not go along with the Deuteronomist, the Jewish attempt to reestablish that shaman tradition. Jesus was a mystic and a shaman, and he taught the hidden tradition, which later, when the Romans decided they would choose Christianity as the imperial religion, they did the same thing the Deuteronomist did. They inverted Jesus. He was no longer a shaman, and a mystic. He was God, and you need to follow him. Do as he says. And so they inverted it, just as the Deuteronomist had inverted it. And the Deuteronomist also inverted this beautiful myth of the tree, the goddess, life, the force of life in multidimensional reality. And there are pre-Judaic the Sumerian seals, which show the tree and the god and the goddess are both pointing to the tree filled with fruit as to say, take it, eat it. It was never forbidden. This is what the Deuteronomist did. The Deuteronomist said, you shall not eat of that tree of good and evil. It's really the tree of life. And of course, when you did eat of it, that was your initiation into knowing who you are, that you're immortal, that you're divine, and you are creative. Well, the Deuteronomist said, no, you're not immortal. You'll die if you eat the fruit. It was complete opposite. And that you're obviously, you are nothing. And all of these pictures of Adam and Eve going out, looking dreadful and, and God exiling, but this is all political power, restructuring, inverting 
what is truly our myths. And the true myths come out of the organizing principle within the human psyche or soul. It's not just because we say it's a myth. This one didn't come out of the human psyche because if it comes out of the psyche, it is life-giving. It is take, eat, you too are gods. And we didn't even know about the Jesus inversion much until at 1945, the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered. These were texts that the, the monks in, around Nag Hammadi were told, you don't even get rid of those or they'll be burned, they'll be destroyed. They hid them, they buried them. And they were found in 1945, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Also, those were Jews who wouldn't go along with that second temple Deuteronomist tradition. They felt they carried the living covenant of Israel with God. Anyway, Nagamari text, Jesus said, I did not come to save you. I came to remind you of who you are. Do not follow the Christ. You become the Christ. That's our true heritage, which has been suppressed. Yes, the church made us evil and dirty and wrong and everything that can be beautiful, sexuality, the body, nature was all evil. <laughs> it has been the grossest inversion of who we are. And why was it suppressed? Because that is our innate power. If we understood who we truly are as souls and bodies, and that we have all these gifts and talents as mystics and shamans and masters on this planet right now, we would be totally empowered, meaning we cannot be controlled, we cannot be manipulated, and, and that's what the church took away. They took away people's power. Precisely. Always when, when we want power, we destroy the others. And, and I see it today. If one is a natural healer, one wants, as our ancestors, wanted more than anything to know the laws of nature. You follow the laws of nature and you see how you can co-create with nature. So if we have an immune system, a natural healer will want to enhance and support the immune system. Above all, we do everything to keep our body healthy. Uh, and you know, we, the stats tell us that 90-some percent of those who died with COVID earlier had many comorbidities. We have a very unhealthy country. Yes. And D3, for example, can protect us tremendously from these types of respiratory diseases. And we're pretty low in it nationwide. And the science that supported that was censored by the government and the health agencies just recently. So I think we're up against, and I'm talking more freely today than I have before, and you can, you can cut me if you feel you need to. Keep it going, Dr. <laughs> Betty, keep it going. Just go there, please. <laughs> well, I think that we, we really need to be very cautious about what is being called science today because they are censoring tens of hundreds of thousands of very good scientists, uh, doctors, clinicians, and people around the world who have worked with more natural medicines. And those medicines were also censored, by the way. I am told that there were no protocols given to doctors in this country or basically around the world as should have been done. 
for COVID at home. So they didn't mm -hmm. go to the hospital. There were those doctors who thought, wait a minute, I took the Hippocratic Oath. I am going to do what I can to keep these people out of the hospital because they're dying in the hospital. But they were not given, as should have been given, protocols for treatment. These doctors say, and they have uh, put it on the website, and I think it's one of the most downloaded uh, apps, uh, of protocols for prevention of COVID, treatment mm -hmm. of COVID at home, and treatment in the hospital. I've got it printed out here on my desk. <laughs> it's so, a front, front line. Yes. Uh, so there are medicines out there that work effectively against COVID, but they're not being used and they're basically being trashed in the media right now as a joke, but they are working and we should have access for them and, and our doctor should be prescribing them. Absolutely. And we have, they are FDA approved and mm -hmm. they, have, they have been working around the world globally for half a century. One I think is 65 years, the other 40 years. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about, well, they're, they're, they actually use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and uh, steroids and other things. They have a group of medicines they use. These doctors, these frontline doctors who are, are giving this protocol for other doctors to use say, this is a crime against humanity. This could be, this uh, epidemic could be over in a month. Now, for me, I, that is heartbreaking. Yeah. They say we could have saved 85% of the 600,000 who died. Now, we've got to take that seriously. If the protocols were absent and suppressed, even D3, a peer-reviewed paper, was suppressed, censored, we need to say, wait a minute, something seriously, seriously wrong is going on. But if I even say that to some people, it's like they can't hear it. Because oh, you'll, you'll get attacked. Yes. And 24-7, they hear the opposite. Yeah. Yes. So it's like the science group that will just say, well, the science, the science, the science. But you've got to understand that science is corrupt. Government is corrupt. And it's always been about the dollar bill in this country. It's all about money. And it's, that's the reason why we don't have universal health care in this country, because the companies, the pharmaceutical companies are making money off of people being sick. Precisely. As they say, follow the money. And in right. this case, if, if hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin have been used for half a century successfully, then they would not have been able to develop a vaccine because if there is a solution, then they, you can't develop the vaccine. And they are making billions on this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Someone recently sent me a contraindication with the use of hydroxychloroquine. And I'm thinking, what about the contraindications of the vaccine that thousands are dying and, mm -hmm. and many thousands have and, uh, adverse effects? And that's underreported. And... Yeah. In the UK, and there's all sorts of numbers, but anywhere from 30 to 80% of the hospitalized with COVID are vaccinated because they're highly vaccinated over there. Here, oh, yes, yes, they're reporting 1%. Really? 
Well, and they did report uh, more uh, for a while and then they didn't, but uh, many people are reporting from Israel because Israel has a very high vaccination rate and their uh, people in the hospital with Delta, the so-called variant, uh, are they were, I don't wanna get the stats wrong, but they were 40%, I think at one time and then 20%, but nevertheless, the vaccinated people and even the CDC says that they are carrying the virus and can transmit it. And yet they are saying only vaccinated people can enter and they are as uh, capable of carrying it as the unvaccinated. And of course, many people think if they listen to the propaganda that we're very, that people are very selfish if they don't do that. But that's the assumption that there's only way to achieve immunity. And once again, it is a negation of the human body's potential yes. to heal itself. Yeah. So our bodies have an immune system. We have access to plant medicine. We have, you know, there's, if you're, if you're, you know, if you understand the mind body connection and what self care is and all of that, you can fight COVID. 99% of the people recover. You yes, can the, fight it. The survival uh, rates, I mean, especially for children, it was like 99.998 or something like that. I mean, it's almost what if it, you think we were fighting uh, the Black Plague here? I mean, the survival rates are good. And there are many people who have died, but were they treated? And right. you know, it's we mm -hmm. are getting a science that if it's seventy percent pharma owned, uh, the media, and then the other corporations own the rest of it, many of them are buying up large corporations. What media is left, we have to recognize we're not going to get a truth that is contra to corporate uh, information. Mm -hmm. And they are even changing uh, the internet with false information about things and censoring doctors and mm -hmm. they're and censoring on Twitter. Every time you post anything about the vaccine, Facebook has to send you a message mm -hmm. on it, stamp their little sign on it. You know, this is where you get the correct information. You know, so there's all sorts of that going on right now. So doesn't that make you suspicious? I'm asking the audience members, doesn't that make you suspicious? And yes, that's what I keep thinking, that uh, there's several things that were done. Uh, for instance, uh, the incorrect testing to make it look like there were a lot of more people who were testing positive, the PCR testing, mm -hmm. and then renaming earlier uh, the name for epidemic so that could more easily be called and not treating people at home, which filled the hospitals. There were a lot of things which were done to enhance the fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find that if, if we believe the government and the, head the health agencies, there are many good scientists in the health agencies I'm talking about the ones who call the shots. If we listen to them, and that's what we get through the media, we'll get a very distorted picture. But if we know where to go to hear scientists, I have been for a year and a half listening to scientists from Europe and from the UK, from Ireland and the United States, but they get censored. They have to go to places where they can get through. I mean, it's the data 
is overwhelming. And one just has to ask, I ask myself constantly, if, if we know these things in our country, the suppression of prevention, the suppression of medicines that for a half a century have helped, wouldn't we want to do everything we could if we were on the level to get these people what they need and to keep them out of the hospital? And then when they're in the hospital to, I don't know if we have that information, how we cannot see that we need to follow the money to know what's happening to us. And we need to then take research a little further and see what is the plan behind this corporate control? What is in the plan for us? We need to do that while we still can see it and do something. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. And I think that is part of what uh, Pishti was talking about. He didn't go into that kind of detail, obviously. But, <laughs> but that, Pishti, uh, you missed the drama. <laughs> right. But I, it was that this is a huge crossroads for us. And I can see in doing that research of these uh, shaman mystic communities, and there's so many more than I talked about, mm -hmm. that um, and how they have been suppressed. And what kind of person did that create, you might say? And so there are those who have tried to find out about the shaman mystic tradition, and those who are quite conditioned, and good people often, who are quite conditioned by the powers that be. And I see that that inversion from the Deuteronomist, the Roman church, and the scientific story, and in today, those have all robbed us of any significance whatsoever. You are nothing, or sinner in the hands of an angry God, as the Protestant would have said it earlier. We are not that. We are co-creators with the universe. And any, any power that seeks to take that away from us must be stopped. And I don't mean in a violent way. I mean, we must in whatever nonviolent, loving, co-creative way we can become aware of our brothers and sisters who've been terribly damaged by this inverted myth. And they're trying to create a world in which they play God and we become a transhuman and usable or disposable. This is a terrible illness that all of these centuries of suppression have caused. You pretty much summed it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Betty, I so enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you for sharing your story about your son and your husband and your mom and the fact that there is life after death. And I don't know how we segued into uh, COVID, but it was all about being the empowered human that you are. Precisely that. And right. these powers that have gotten control have always sought to make us think we're nothing and that we have no power. And really, I think these, these scientists who are going in that direction, if they knew something about the potential of human being, that's where their work should be. How mm -hmm. do we tap this powerful energy, this loving frequency within the human being that can be so creative and co-creative. That's what we need to be working on. 
Yes, I totally agree. And, you know, for the listeners that hung on to the end of this episode, (laughs) you know, start looking at yourself as being a powerful human being on the planet, because I have said this time and time again, you and I get to dictate what happens here. Even spirit can't tell us what should happen on this planet. We do. So what kind of planet, what kind of life do you want to create on this planet today and for the future? I love it. And then take action, empowered action toward that. Oh, that's beautiful. Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dr. Betty. Oh, thank you. I so enjoyed meeting you. (laughs) I'm going to have you back on if you if you are open to it. (laughs) I am. (laughs) This is our work. (laughs) Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot, and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218, or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.